So I would like to uh, review some of what we've covered today related to wise speech, and then I'd like to, uh, after covering the basics, just take them a little bit further. And my intention is to speak for about 15 to 20 minutes and then leave some open time for us to reflect on where we've been, anything that's come up, any questions or, or reflections. And I'd invite all of us, including myself, to take this time as a time of practice. It's actually uh, something I like a lot in listening to Dharma talks or giving them, is to see this not as separate from our practice. So that might mean, what does it mean to listen? Can I be grounded in my body? For myself as a speaker, I will intend to be present to my body. That's for me personally, that's a very helpful practice. And I, I um, work with that as a practice when I give talks. I try to ground myself both in my body and in my heart and actually speak more out of the body and heart and somewhat let my thoughts uh, self-organize. Until I have really bad results with that technique, I, I'm keeping to that <laughs> approach. So, um, so I invite you also to see this as a time of practice, to see, in fact, all of the retreat as a, as a kind of practice. So I want to talk really just about the two areas that we've explored, which are first the working with the ethical guidelines and secondly working with uh, mindfulness of speech. And I think that it's very significant that the guidelines on speech and the work with speech in the teachings of the Buddha is so central. You might wonder, why would monks and nuns who are silent so much of the time be told that wise speech or right speech is one of the eight aspects of their whole spiritual path? I've often puzzled about that. You know, why, why is speech so central when they're spending so much time in silence? Why did the Buddha mention it? And then it also appears as one of the core uh, ethical precepts. Uh, certainly uh, among the five fundamental precepts, it's, it's one of the five. So I think it's very central. And as I was saying earlier, perhaps even more so for us who are not monks or nuns, but are in the world where we're speaking a lot, it's so central. Um, and there's a lot that could be said. You know, we are, in a way, giving a beginning approach to speech. There's a lot more that we could talk about. In fact, I'm planning a five-day retreat here next September just focused on speech. And we'll bring in uh, the discipline of nonviolent communication that some of you know, and we'll expand the work with speech. We could, you know, bring it in a lot of different directions. We could look at the very nature of concepts and language and how do we relate to that from a, um, from a spiritual perspective. We could look also at the way that when we work with speech, we necessarily, in our lives, bring in how do we relate to the whole social dimension? How do we relate to our use of uh, media, information, you know, the, the kind of speech which we've internalized from our society? So there's a lot, there are a lot of directions we could go. But I want to really focus for, the, for tonight uh, just on these two aspects. And so to review the, the ethical guidelines, at least one way of interpreting them, one way of naming them, is in this list of truthfulness, or Mary mentioned honesty. Or the second would be helpfulness of speech. 
the beneficial quality of speech. Third, the quality of kindness or warmth. We might say speaking from our hearts and having that be more and more a pervasive feature of our speech. And the fourth being the kind of compilation of, uh, that I, I think I'd like now to use the term appropriateness, which includes timing. It includes the quality of having clear intention, the um, sort of the social appropriateness of the speech. Again, uh, very significant. And as we were exploring earlier today, um, and I know someone was uh, reflecting, and maybe it was you, David, but, uh, that, that you didn't, maybe it was, correct me if I'm wrong, but mentioning that you didn't always remember the guidelines in the speech. Was that you? Yeah, yeah. And, and, but, but still, even when we work with the guidelines, sometimes, even though we don't remember them, we may, when we get into one of these gray areas, find that a light goes on. When we work with the guidelines a lot, even if in our speech we're not noticing them, when we get into the area where we may be not so truthful or actually not truthful or not so helpful, when we've worked with these guidelines a lot, there can be a kind of remembering that occurs. I think that is evidenced by people saying, I'm not sure if this is right speech, but... That, so there, there's a way that even though we're not remembering them all the time, they can be really operative. And working with the guidelines, I think intention is so important. And we can implement the intention in a lot of very practical ways. And I'll just mention a few that I've worked with personally or that uh, people I've worked with have, have worked with in, in working with these guidelines. Um, I mentioned how uh, one person in the group I, uh, I have... Um, she decided it was actually best if she wrote the four guidelines on her hand and had them present. And she would be speaking to someone and she'd have these guidelines. No one else could see them. And she'd be working with them. She, she was particularly motivated to do this with her teenage daughter. And so that's, that's kind of a practical way of um, using them. I personally often will write the guidelines on a piece of paper at a meeting and have them right in front of me and other people can't quite see them. I mean, I'd like it if they saw them and found them helpful, but, you know, I kind of, in other words, I keep it to myself, but I actually work with them and have them right there. And sometimes also uh, a technique for mindfulness of speech, which I personally use sometimes in meetings, particularly if I'm not, if I'm not having to, uh, like, run the meeting or something, is that I actually sometimes take a piece of paper and do a running mindfulness log during the meeting. Not all the time, but just noticing, okay, um, getting tired, sarcastic thoughts developing. (laughs) And I find that just that degree of mindfulness is actually enough sometimes to prevent the uh, sarcastic thoughts from being known publicly. Uh, And also, uh, so that kind of mindfulness practice is really uh, possible. Uh, I actually also have right near my computer and my desk, I have a little note where I have the guidelines. And one practice I've also done sometimes, and other people have done, is when the telephone rings, I say, it's keeping on ringing, I say, truthful, helpful, (laughs) kind, appropriate. Hello. 
And I, th I think I'm just offering these as uh, maybe a catalyst to your own creativity. Because it's, again, the problem of our practice is not that the practice is hard, but that we don't remember to do the practice, particularly in daily life. So uh, anything that helps us remember, you know, some people wear little bracelets that just, they can signify something. You can, you know, you could have, um, you know, you could have just the initials of the four qualities on your hand or on a bracelet or whatever. Or you could, uh, so I guess I'm just uh, inviting that kind of creativity just to, to use those guidelines. And then there's the uh, second aspect, in fact, which I've mentioned in some ways, that the aspect of working with mindfulness of speech. And it's interesting that the Buddha, in his teachings, gave these um, guidelines and in some ways, they're really ethical guidelines. They're guidelines about our behavior, about how we speak, how we are. They're not really guidelines about being mindful. And it's interesting. I think the Buddha just kind of assumed that people could be mindful. You know, but they're actually, I think, for myself, I have sometimes have really found useful having these concrete techniques, like be aware of my body as I speak. Learn how to have this bodily presence which for me and for many sort of breaks the, uh, almost like the monopolistic quality of the mental stream. When we have something like body awareness, we don't quite, we have a little bit of space around our thoughts. And we can, um, I think, more readily know that there's a reaction or that there's this or that thought happening. And this is a general, uh, approach that one can take towards mindfulness practice in general. And I always remember a teaching that I got from uh, the person who's really been my main mentor over the last uh, six or seven years. He's a good friend of Mary's, uh, John Travis, whom some of, you, some of you know and have worked with. And I, I remember I was having a discussion with John just about the difference between being in a monastery and particularly some of the great Asian teachers living in monasteries and living in daily life and, and the whole question of how do we find support for our practice? How do we have the level of support which we might have feel in this retreat or that we might have in a monastery? And John said something to me that reflects his teaching, but it really, it really stuck with me. He said, let your body be your monastery. And at the moment when he said that, it electrified me, actually. I said, you know, because it, it seemed like uh, a way that has proved to be personally quite workable to carry that intention with me through uh, awareness of the body. And I think others might do it in different ways. But I think what it points to is the need to have something that we can have uh, that can be there a lot of the time in daily life and keep reminding us to practice or to be aware. Body awareness is one way to do it. I don't think it's the only way. But for me, it's been really, really crucial. In so in addition to sort of breaking the automatic caught in the mind type of experience, which is so much what our conditioning is. Um, I always also remember the, the answer to the question uh, that the great Thai teacher, Buddha Dasa, he was once asked, what do you think of Western civilization? 
you know, and it's, it's a great question. Some of you remember Gandhi's answer to that question. I think it would be a good idea. <laughs> and and, and uh, Buddha Dasa's answer was lost in thought. <laughs> and so I think in our culture, in our society, this attention to the body for many of us has a very, very special role, a very special role in mindfulness of speech. For me, it has had that role. And I, and I, I, if I remember that statement, let, let your body be your monastery, sort of because carry your monastery around like a, a turtle with a shell, you know, that, that it's there. So grounding in the body, tremendous aid to mindfulness of speech for many of us. And again, for some of us, it might be to really ground in the heart and have that quality of kindness and warmth be, be what's present. You know, I have a, a friend who I've discussed a lot of this with, and she says, you know, she, her practice, she really feels called to really, I used the language earlier, of lead with her heart. As, and that's a way which can also be an aid to mindfulness, because it's really whatever, I think, take, get, creates a larger space of awareness and brings that core intention into uh, daily life. So as we develop more mindfulness of our speech, we start experiencing insights, such as those that have been mentioned earlier. People saying, oh, I found that I want to, I have a lot of energy in creating an impression. Or I notice, oh, when I talk about myself, I tend to exaggerate. Or it might be that I notice that I, um, maybe I interrupt a lot. So all those things, when we start bringing mindfulness to our speech, we start noticing a lot of things. Or we might notice, oh, I actually do have a lot of kindness. Or I, I, have, I have very good intentions when I speak. We might notice both the what's very positive, but we might also notice where there's some, something we haven't noticed before. And the mindfulness can really help with that. It's a slow process, you know, the, the practice of bringing awareness to speech, bringing mindfulness to speech, I think is a long-term kind of work that we do. You know, we gradually start noticing some of what we might have noticed in the afternoon, the shadow area. We can really start seeing that more clearly. Um, we can start seeing, especially when we look at our, our speech, we can start to notice what leads me away from mindfulness or awareness. In particular, when do I start becoming reactive in my speech? What sorts of stimuli get me angry? What sorts of stimuli get me into my, you know, uh, self-righteous rap number 32? Uh, and when we start bringing mindfulness to our speech, an important part that we'll look at more uh, two days from now when we look uh, at conflict more. But a really key part of mindfulness of speech is, is starting to see when we lose it in our speech. And so, again, the spirit of mindfulness is not trying to be perfect, but just trying to see what's there and say, it's like this. Oh, this is how I get lost in, in my speech. This is my, these are my three or four main reactive patterns. And a key part is, is becoming um, connoisseurs of our own reactivity. That may not be what you came to hear on this retreat, <laughs> but it's really an important part of our practice. It's to become actually interested in how we lose it. 
and start to be able to be mindful, start to say, okay, what kinds of stimuli lead me to lose it? What kind of speech interactions? You know, for myself, uh, I find that uh, when someone doesn't listen to me, I may start to become quite reactive. You may too. <laughs> that there's something that um, happens when someone doesn't listen to me, or you know, when when I say something and someone instantly changes the subject. I notice that it can very quickly lead to reactive speech. And so I've had to study that over and over again and find ways to uh, gradually transform that reactivity. And we'll talk more about that when we look, when we look at conflict. So I wanted just to um, finish by talking a little bit more about listening because listening is so crucial for our practice of speech. And in itself, it's such a beautiful metaphor for our whole spiritual practice in a way. And some of you know that um, the great Tibetan yogi Milarepa is often pictured in Tibetan uh, paintings and, and woodblock prints with his hand cupped to his ear in the mountains, just listening, just listening to life. It's really a metaphor for what we do in our practice and the way we listen for, to ourselves. And we listen more broadly. We listen to life. We learn to listen better. That's what our practice really is about. Or we might think of Kuan Yin, who is said, who is the bodhisattva of compassion, the being dedicated to compassionate um, listening and compassionate action. And Quan Yin, who's the Chinese manifestation of compassion, is very interesting. In India, it's Avalokitesvara, and, uh, and portrayed as a male. And in China, when, it go, when um, Avalokitesvara crosses the border, becomes a woman, and uh, has a different name, and is called Quan Yin. So it's it's a transgender uh, bodhisattva. But she said in the Chinese tradition, what she does is she listens to the cries of the world. That's what the work of compassion is, to listen. And so listening is so central. Um, what we do really in our practice is I think that we, we develop a lot of the qualities to be a good listener. We listen to ourselves, we learn to be patient, and we listen even when something that's difficult is happening. Even when there's anger, we can listen. Even when there's pain in the body, we can listen. And this becomes something that we can translate outward into our interactions with others in speech. That if we've become familiar with some of the difficult territory of our own experience, we can more easily bring it into the uh, listening to others. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, at one point, talked about the role of a peacemaker. He says the role of a peacemaker is to be able to listen to the suffering of one side and bring that suffering to the others, to the other side, and then go back and bring the suffering of the, of the second side to the first side. And in practice, people who do mediation and work with conflicts, that's actually, for many 
people who work with conflicts, that's the most important quality is to be able to listen. To be able to listen. And Thich Nhat Hanh says that unless we've done the mindfulness training and been able to be with our own difficult experiences, it's very hard for us to listen to another when that other person is bringing forth judging and blaming and stories of suffering. It's hard to listen to those. And so our mindfulness practice is a kind of training and listening. And listening, I think, is also even, it's really a kind of action in a way that I think we find that in, in, in um, helping to reconcile people or to develop peace, that um, I'll tell one personal story that um, about uh, eight or nine years ago, I was um, chair of our graduate school faculty for two years. And I found that what I was mostly getting paid to do was guess what? Just listen. When I reflected on it, I found that about 80% of the work I did was to listen to someone complain. (laughs) I would listen to this person complain. I would listen carefully, try to be empathic. And then I would almost always say, I hear what you're saying. You have this or that problem. My suggestion is that you find a good time and talk with the person with whom you have a conflict. (laughs) 80% of my work, I got paid extra for it. (laughs) And it's it's really so significant. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross said that in terms of someone who is ill or someone who's dying, what that person most wants is someone who can be present, listen, and not run away. So it's a very powerful quality. Um, I remember also a story of the Oslo peace process in 1993 between the Palestinians and the Israelis which actually had some breakthroughs, no matter what else has happened since then. And the breakthroughs happened when they were both able to listen to each other. And the way it happened was, and, and part of listening, if you take, if you take um, a broader view, part of the role of a peacemaker is to set up good conditions for listening. And so what happened in this process was the Norwegian foreign minister and his wife invited the Israelis and the Palestinians to a farm outside of Oslo. And it was only there when they were at, at the home helping to cook and playing with the four-year-old child that they could actually settle down enough to listen to each other. And they, when they listened to each other, they learned that they too had families. They too had daily concerns. And out of that process, they listened to each other and they had breakthroughs. So there is something that's extremely powerful about listening. And in a way, we listen to others, we listen in our practice, and ultimately we also need to listen very, very deeply to ourselves. And I think I'll, I'll end with um, another story. Um, it's actually from, um, from Gandhi. There was a time in the movement for independence in India I think it was 1930 or so. And no one knew what to do. There was violence. There were a lot of people questioning the nonviolent approach. 
And Gandhi said, I don't know what to do, but the time seems dark. I'm going to go home and listen for what's the right thing to do. It's interesting that this, this quality of listening, we often talk about even our own life work as a vocation. The word vocation has to do with voice. It has to do with listening and hearing a voice which is right for us. And Gandhi said, I need to listen to the voice about what's right to do in the moment. And there was a lot of pressure on on him, do this, do that. And he just sat at home. And a lot of the time he just sat on his veranda and looked at the river. And you can imagine people around him were getting antsy. And Gandhi said, I just need to listen. I just need to listen. I know that the voice will come about what to do, but I need to listen. I need to listen. And he listened for weeks. Pressure from the outside. I just want to keep on listening. And after about six weeks of listening, he heard what seemed to be a voice telling him what to do. He said, I will go and march to the sea and make salt from the ocean. Some of you, if you know the history of that, this was the Great Salt March, which was actually a pivotal moment in the whole uh, transition to independence. 10,000 people marched with him based on his own listening. And he listened, he acted, and something very, very um, uh, large happened in terms of shifting. I think that's the quality that we have. We listen on a daily basis. We listen for our own deeper um, intention, our own deeper vocation. We listen to others. And we do the training for this when we just sit and very quietly listen to our own voices, name it, saying, oh, it's like this. It's like this. And so that's the, that is the, this practice that we're doing continually really is a training for daily life practice. That all of this quality of listening that we do on the cushion by ourselves trains us to listen to others, trains us to listen to ourselves, and trains us, I think, to be able to act more wisely and compassionately in the world. So thank you. Maybe we can just take uh, a minute or so and sit quietly and then we can see what arises. Listen for what is arising. Are there any questions about anything that's happened during the day or reflections? Um, please, Daniel. Um, you mentioned that, that thing that we do uh, about the, uh, <laughs> yeah. do, do you have a, a way to um, 
It's a great question, uh, isn't it? I mean, I think we probably have a lot of resources here in the <laughs> hall about how to how to work with that situation. I'll just say one thing, and maybe Mary might want to add something. Um, um, I'll, t- I'll just say what I do when I when I remember, and and I think I sometimes just say, you know, um, I'm not sure I want to talk about that so much more. It, you know, you could be very. I think the key in a lot of this speech is to be um, just talk about your own experience, right? Because what people are particularly um, sensitive to and even defensive about is anything that hits hints of being judgmental. So we haven't talked so much about skillful speech, but uh, in the sense of what kind of language to use and so forth. But I think that if you keep if, if, if I speak about my own experience without making a judgment about the other person's speech being in some way wrong or problematic, that can much more easily work with the situation. So that's that's one one way to go with that. Does anyone else have a helpful way to work with that situation, please? Um, 
I have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> Please. Yeah. I have friends who I think only maybe once or twice in the whole time I've known have ever done anything in gospel mm-hmm. has ever said any or half time um, he never says anything about it, but I've noticed that if I invite him to say, well, that's just so, you know, blah, 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 blah. He'll just smile and not respond. Mm. And it doesn't go anywhere yeah, because yeah. he doesn't respond. And after a while, you say, ah, Mark, that's a gossip. That's a really good idea. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it, it's, it's almost by example without mm. ever Joseph Goldstein once suggested a practice that one we could try for a week. He, uh, he, he once did this. He said, Try well. Try for a day or a week the practice of not talking about a third person. In other words, someone who's not actually there in the moment when you're talking with another person. Let me let me just experiment and see what happens when I don't speak about someone who's not present in the actual conversation. And he did that as an experiment. He said um, about ninety percent of my conversations dropped away. <laughs> yeah. Please, Eric. Other questions or reflections? You got a good, good response. To <laughs> Please, David. It's an amazing question, and, and the answer is yes, 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 yes. Um, there's a wonderful little um, kind of parable that uh, one of our friend, uh, good friends, uh, Gil Fronsdale, who some of you know, teaches here. He says that if there was someone who trailed around us, repeating what we say to ourselves <laughs> over and over again in the same ways that we talk to ourselves, we would find that person one of the most obnoxious 
persons <laughs> who's ever existed in the world. And, um, and so, yes, it's, it's, it's a great practice. It's, um, I, th- I think it's actually even a more subtle practice to, to ask, how do I talk to myself? How do I, is there a way I can be mindful of my own internal language and, and work with these guidelines in that way? So I think it's, it's fantastic. It hasn't really been um, emphasized very much in the traditional understanding of wise speech. Yeah. Yeah. Did everyone hear? Yeah. No, it's. Um, I think. I think it's really is wonderful, and it, it. It's also very much connected with the quality of metta. But I think it's also really the last question. Our, our culture here in the West 
because it's been so um, intent on comparison and grading and being first and all of that, and it's so imbued with judgment, it has created a lot of conditions to that kind of thing. So I don't think it's so common. I don't think I've ever met anybody who just has those kinds of thoughts. Yeah, I'll, I'll just say one more thing, and then we can sit for a moment before we before we finish. Um, I think probably if we look in our lives, we'll find that we have certain places. It might be with people we're closest to, where 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 a wise and kind speech is much more the norm. I think maybe at our best moments with the people we love, and certain uh, maybe more in our uh, maybe more private lives. Um, I think the the path that we're really exploring here is how to how to bring about that that deeper kindness and a deeper wisdom, and it's really as we do that work. And I think I hope that the the, the focus on wise speech has really helped us to see the interconnection of the the work that we do in silence on the cushion with the work that we do in speaking. That's really the theme of the retreat and that in uh, both of those kinds of um, practice, both those kinds of exploration, we can really develop those capacities. The the teachings are that wisdom and kindness and compassion are actually deeper in our being than the qualities of uh, meanness or self-centeredness. That's actually, that it's what we uncover as we do more practice. And so you could say that's a very optimistic view of human nature. Maybe let's just sit for a moment quietly. Sometimes I find it helpful after a talk just to listen for what's been most helpful or important, to invite that to be present. We have a half hour of walking, and then we'll come back for the final sitting of the evening. And you can, of course, walk outside if you have rain gear. And shall we say that it's okay to walk in here if you'd like to? If you'd like to do the walking in here, you could walk 
this room was designed to walk more or less back and forth from the back wall to this wall near near me. And so feel free, if you want to walk in the open spaces, to walk here. There's also the lower walking hall um, down beneath the main hall. And there you could also you can also walk in the residence halls. And you, if you want to walk inside or walk just underneath the uh, outside, but not exposed in the passageways. So, thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.